0: Can I invite you to turn in God's Word, the Bible, to Hebrews 10. Hebrews 10, and we'll read 18 verses. It's on page 1207 if you're using the church pew Bibles. <clears throat> So Hebrews 10 and verse 1. The law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the realities themselves. For this reason, it can never, by the same sacrifices, repeated endlessly year after year, make perfect those who draw near to worship. If it could, they would not have stopped being offered. For the worshipers would have been cleansed once for all. And would no longer have felt guilty for their sins. But those sacrifices are an annual reminder of sins. Because it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Therefore, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifice, an offering you did not desire, but a body you prepared for me. With burnt offerings and sin offerings you were not pleased. Then I said, Here I am. It is written about me in the scroll, I have come to do your will, O God. First he said, Sacrifices and offerings, burnt offerings and sin offerings you did not desire, nor were you pleased with them, although the law required them to be made. And then he said, Here I am. I have come to do your will. He sets aside the first to establish the second. And by that will, we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties. Again and again, he offers the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when this priest had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins... He sat down at the right hand of God. Since that time, he waits for his enemies to be made his footstool, because by one sacrifice he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. The Holy Spirit also testifies to us about this. First he says, This is the covenant I will make with them after that time, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their hearts and I will write them on their minds. And then he adds, Their sins and lawless acts I will remember no more. And where these have been forgiven, there is no longer any sacrifice for sin. Amen. This is the Word of God. We're going to explore these verses uh, in a bit more detail later on. But first of all, let me put a question to you. I've got a couple of questions for you this evening. Uh, Question one, should British taxpayers' money be used to fund the Pope's visit to Britain next week? Don't all cry out. Uh, The BBC News on the 4th of September uh, said that uh, of a survey, quite a significant survey, taxpayers said it shouldn't be the British government or the taxpayers' um, responsibility to pay for the visit. Uh, Stephen McGinty in The Scotsman, two days later, said uh, in an article uh, entitled, The State Should Share Pope Visit Cost, uh, says that uh, the Archbishop of Westminster, Vincent Nichols, the head of the Catholic Church in England and Wales, uh, said taxpayers should pay up to £12 million pounds for the Pope's visit to Britain. Now, I don't know if you've got a strongly held opinion or view on the funding of the visit that's going to hit Scotland on Thursday this week you might be against the visit taking place altogether irrespective of how much it costs but whether the visit should or shouldn't be happening or who or should not who should or should not be funding it isn't actually the main issue there's a far more important question to consider and bigger questions to be addressed uh, in our staff team meeting uh, i think a couple of months ago now Paul um, gestured to me with a bit of enthusiasm and said, how about we do a series coinciding with the Pope's visit to Scotland? And like the stupid schoolboy error I always fall into, I said, yeah, what well, a great idea. <laughs> so over the next three weeks, I'm doing a series <laughs> <laughs> um, entitled The Courage to be Biblical. And we'll think about that. Here's the second question for you. Is it time to put the past behind us and be reunited, Protestants and Catholics, forgetting the things that have divided us historically, and seek to establish a relationship of ecumenism that will allow us to work and worship together? Now, uh, at the end of August, the leader of the Roman Catholic Church here in Scotland, Cardinal Keith O'Brien, he gave details of the St. Ninian's Day Parade uh, at Edinburgh Castle. It's going to take place here in the city on Thursday. Uh, If you've not noticed in the bulletin, our church office is closed. Uh, Some of us will still be working, but the office is closed for that day because of uh, the congestion that will be in the city center. Organizers of this St. Ninian's Parade have dubbed the event a grand Scottish spectacle, with actors playing key historical figures including uh, St. Columba, St. Margaret, Queen Mary of Scots, John Knox, uh, played by actors leading the parade. Fiona uh, Fiona Hislop, who is the culture minister, said, The St. Ninian's Day parade will be a wonderful occasion as crowds gather in the streets of Edinburgh to extend the world-renowned, warm Scottish welcome to the Holy Father. This is a great opportunity for all of Scotland to celebrate the positive contribution all our faith communities make to the life of our nation. Now here's the thing folks, put like that, it all sounds like a bit of a harmless good fun, a real good day out, doesn't it? But the question is, is it? In our sermon series over the next three weeks, we're planning to look at three of the major doctrines that were the focus of the Reformation and their significance uh, for us today to be, to have the courage to be biblical uh, there were five major doctrines, um, sola scriptura, which means by scripture alone, sola fide, by faith alone, sola gratia, by grace alone, solas Christus, or sola Christo, Christ alone or through Christ alone, and solo Deo Gloria, glory to God alone. We're looking at three of those uh, under the titles Christ alone, Bible alone, that's scripture alone, and faith alone over the next few weeks. Now, there are many things that... Do you want to bring up that slide for me, the, the title? Thank you. Christ Alone. This is the, tonight's sermon, Not Priests and the Mass. And we'll look at Hebrews 10 later on. Now, of course, there are many things that post-Reformation Protestant Church uh, holds in common with Roman Catholicism. The Catholics claim to believe in a basic Trinitarian view of God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, for example. They're champions at speaking out against issues such as abortion, euthanasia, homosexuality, and other gender-related matters regarding a biblical view of the role in men and women in society uh, and in the home and in the church. Their contribution to combating poverty and seeking to minister among the poor and the outcast of the world is hard to beat, maybe second to none. Some of you will have seen in a recent article in Evangelicals Now by John Benton, a very, what I think is a helpful published article entitled Roman Catholicism and Examination. And in it he said, with the visit of Pope Benedict to Britain due in September, is it right to remind ourselves how Catholicism differs from the biblical gospel? And so at times I will be quoting in the next few minutes directly from his article as he helpfully lists ten points on which Protestant evangelicals differ significantly from Roman Catholics. The reason that we're calling this series, The Courage to be Biblical, is that we don't want to see this as kind of anti- Catholicism. There is much that claims the name of Protestantism and tragically even Evangelicalism that may need to be challenged by the same Uh, exhortation, to have the courage to be biblical. Much of the evangelical church uh, is being influenced by redaction theology or a revisionist view of Scripture. And so it's not just Catholics, but Protestants as well need to come again under the authority of the sound of the living Word of God. Some of the key um, concerns that sparked the Reformation Uh, through pre-reformers like Waldo, Wycliffe, and Huss, the reformers, Luther, Swingley, Tyndale, uh, Calvin, and here in Scotland, John Knox. These are still very real and threatening issues to biblical truth and authority. So we're going to look at these and also some new doctrines and teachings and practice that have been introduced into Roman Catholicism in more recent years. This morning, our pastor... Uh, highlight and encouraged us to think about reading uh, this book here, Nothing in My Hand I Bring by Ray Galea. Uh, it's an excellent little book, very readable. You can sit down in an evening and get through it, and, and you'll discover um, quite a number of the major issues that divide uh, historically Catholics from Protestants. A, a great little read. It's our book of the month. Last month we had The Unquenchable Flame by Michael Reeves, uh, a historical overview of the things that uh, were really part and parcel of the Reformation. Again, if you don't know your church history, great book to sit down, a couple of evenings worth reading in that one, uh, and just get yourself through that, get that and the knowledge. I recommend another book to you, which we're not recommending as a book of the month, because it's far too big uh, for most readers. Uh, this is a book called The Courage to be Protestant, and it's not just looking uh, at what biblical truth is uh, versus Catholicism. It's a real uh, look at, at our post-modern world and looks at issues developing out of the emerging church uh, within more Protestant and, and sometimes evangelical traditions. It's The Courage to be Protestant, and that's by David Wells. I also recommend that one to you. And that's more than two evenings, and I haven't finished it yet. So what are the key doctrines on which Catholics and Protestants differ? Oh, by the way, when I speak about Catholics and Protestants, I am not referring in any form or fashion to cultural Protestantism, or cultural Catholicism. Uh, By that, I mean, you know, that sort of thing that's also known as Glasgow Celtic versus Glasgow Rangers. That's, That's exactly what I mean. That sort of response that comes out of sectarianism, out of hostility, one side for another, based nothing whatsoever to do with God's holy word, but is purely cultural and knows nothing of the saving grace of Jesus Christ on either side of that divide. Again, within it in its most extreme sectarian divides, it's what's known in Northern Ireland as republicanism versus unionism. A form of religious belief that thinks it has a divine right of some kind. That's not what I'm talking about. I see evil on both sides of that divide. I'm talking about orthodox Catholicism. That's for which Pope Benedict claims to be Christ's vicar on earth. The doctrines that are sent out by which men and women are supposed to exactly live their lives. So the first thing that we differ... And again, when I talk about Protestantism, it's not a cultural thing. It's not whether you were raised in Airdrie or Coatbridge. Bridge. It's about whether or not you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. And you trust the divine authority of Scripture. And so that's what I'm talking about when I think about the things that are different. The Bible. And there are two key differences here. Uh, First of all, the Catholics have a different Bible. It has the Old Testament and the New Testament pretty much fundamentally as we have it. But it adds 15 apocryphal books, uh, 15 books that are not in the canon of Scripture. Certainly no record of Jesus ever quoting from any of the Old or New Testament apocryphal books. And so they have that as part of the authority by which the church lives its life and directs its doctrine. Secondly, uh, Catholicism gives their church tradition equal authority with the Bible. So that which any Pope has, has pronounced on since the close of the canon of Scripture at the end of the first century, that also has divine authority. And it's not just Catholics that do that. There, there, are, there are some churches around today within loosely an evangelical tradition but from maybe a more neo-Pentecostal or a charismatic background where, where we know of, of even church ministers who will put loose leafs in their Bibles. So that when they hear the divinely uttered word of God in prophecy, they write that down as authoritatively as the word of God. And that's equally a false doctrine. Rome's error, as it is with some Neo-Pentecostals, is that they put that divine inspiration as they see, they believe they've received it, or they put a, the church on a par with Scripture... And because they do that, you can't engage in self-criticism. They have great difficulty in saying, listen, we got this wrong, so we need to change. That's the essential problem at the time of the Reformation. Rome has only recently rescinded a doctrine that said that babies who die without being baptized by a priest forever float around in eternity with no spiritual destination. Can you imagine the pain? The absolute unnecessary pain that that has caused hundreds of thousands of women and men over many hundreds of years. And of course it has no bearing in Scripture whatsoever. Secondly, where we differ hugely with them is on the issue of the Pope. Um, The Pope is from the Latin Papa. My father incidentally, piece of useless information, You used to farm an island called Papa Stronze. Um, it's now been set up as, as a, a, mon- a monastic order. Uh, so glad my dad wasn't part of that when it was going. Uh, but the, father, the, the Holy Father, the Pope, is said on earth to be here in place of Jesus Christ. The Catechism of the Catholic Church says, For the Roman pontiff, by reason of his office as vicar of Christ and as pastor of the entire church, has full, supreme, and universal power over the whole church. Quoting directly from their catechism. Vatican I in 1870 claimed supreme authority and infallibility for the Pope on all aspects of faith and morals, especially when he speaks officially. remember being at Bible college, and there was great hope following Vatican II that somehow that, that, that which was in, held in, in, in deep, deep, entrenched views by Rome throughout the world would be rescinded and relaxed. And there has been some modification. But nevertheless, the infallibility of the Pope is part of Catholic teaching. What he says is what God says, because he is God's representative here and earth. I think this is serious. I think that that blasphemy is tantamount to usurping the role and ministry of the Holy Spirit, who Jesus said would be his replacement on earth after he ascended to his heavenly throne. Thirdly, on the priests, the priest is said to be a special person who by ordination receives special grace, which he can communicate to other people. He's able, for example, to hear confession and to forgive sins. Without the priesthood, salvation is said to be impossible, for the priests are believed to be the channels, the sole channels of God's grace. But in the New Testament, um, we read that there is only one mediator between God and man, and that is Jesus Christ. 1 Timothy 2 and 5. Jesus Christ offered himself as the all-sufficient and final sacrifice for sins. The work of Jesus is a completed work. We need no one else to mediate with God for us. A fourth doctrine is that of transubstantiation. It's a huge big word. Let me boil down what it means. This Catholic doctrine, um, you see again, a a lot of these doctrines, as it is with, with Protestant church traditions, somehow we think they've always been there, that they have their roots going all the way back into what Jesus taught his disciples to teach the first century church and and we 've got to have the courage to go back and research that again when I was at bible college we had i 've tried to, to, to find this couple um, during the week and, and i 've Facebooked them oh man, that impresses you um, and, and they haven 't got back to me, but when I was at college the girl 's father came to college to teach us that, as a Catholic priest working in Spain, he had been called to the Vatican to to, to work on, on a doctrinal thesis that proved that Peter was the first Pope. And so he gets to the Vatican and he starts opening up um, all the, the, the ancient manuscripts and the books and the papers and he, and he works his way back and he works his way back and he works his way back and he discovers there's just a whole lot of stuff that has entered into authoritative teaching that, that isn't even connected to the New Testament. Let alone all the way back to a living expression of Jesus. So he asks for forgiveness for his sins from the one mediator that stands between God and man, Jesus Christ. He leaves the Catholic priesthood and he gets married. He's 50 something odds when he gets married and he has, he, he's got a great, well, he had a great ministry. This is Donkey's Yonk since I was in college. I don't know whether the guy's around still, but I wanted a clear illustration of. of of just how recent some doctrines are. In in 1215, the doctrine of transubstantiation came in. It refers to the communion when the substance of the bread and wine is said to be changed into the physical body and blood of Jesus. Listen again to what is said in the Catholic Catechism. By the consecration, the transubstantiation of the bread and wine into the body and blood of Jesus is brought about. Under the consecrated species of bread and wine, Christ himself, living and glorious, is present. But you know, in Matthew 26 and 26, the Lord is still present with his disciples when he speaks the word, this is my body, this is my blood. So how could that have changed to be his literal body? No, his words were meant to be taken figuratively. Elsewhere, Jesus talks about being the gate or the door. He's not suggesting that somehow... A piece of wood can become his living body here on earth no more than he wants anyone to believe that the bread becomes his body or the the wine becomes his blood. He doesn't want us to believe that. He wants us to see these things figuratively, to remember his once-for-all sacrifice. They also have the Mass, the most important part of Roman Catholicism. Certainly in worship is the mass or the communion. When the priest is supposed to offer Christ embodied in the bread as a sacrifice to God the Father for sin. So when the priest, the host, elevates the bread, it's lifted up, the congregation bow down in reverence to Jesus in the bread. Of course, nowhere in scripture does it teach us something like that. We're going to think about the implications of that for us and for Catholics later. Baptism, Catholics believe in a baptismal regeneration. Again, reading straight from their their own catechism. Through baptism, we are freed from sin and reborn as sons of God. We become members of Christ and incorporated into the church. That is, they believe that people are made Christians through the act of being baptized with the power of the Holy Spirit operating through the priest. We're coming to the Scriptures, just setting these out as the key ten doctrines before we then look at them in the light of what Hebrews 10. So just four to go. Penance, that means that uh, you confess your sin before a priest in order to obtain pardon. That's a a sacrament binding on Catholics. And the priest can then give you some sort of task or other uh, in order to perform that, in order to satisfy uh, that sin before God. Purgatory is a place where the Catholics teach that, um, well, they teach that some distinguished holy saints go straight to heaven after death. But all ordinary Catholics are said to go to purgatory where their venial and their mortal sins are purged and punished. But you know, again, there's no mention of purgatory in Scripture. It's a very recent doctrine added into the church's life. Jesus says to the thief on the cross, I tell you the truth, today you will be with me in paradise. Straight there. We heard Andy pray it earlier on. James Monaghan. This morning, half past eight, enters into the glory of Christ. For all time and eternity. Via nowhere. That's what God's word teaches. They also teach in indulgences. According to the Catholic teaching, the punishments of sin is met partially by penance and partly by suffering in purgatory where we die. However, Rome claims to have a great wealth of unused merit accumulated both through Christ's sufferings and also through the holy, unselfish lives of the saints. Therefore, they say they're able to offer reduced time in purgatory for money given or special favors done to the Catholic Church. This is said to purchase an indulgence. It was this practice that so upset Martin Luther and started the Reformation in the first place. Now, needless to say, you find nothing in Scripture about indulgences. Then the final one is Mary. Catholics believe that having given birth to Jesus, Mary continued as a virgin, uh, despite what it says in Matthew 1 and 25, which implies that after the birth of Joseph, after the birth of Jesus, Joseph and Mary had a normal sexual relationship for a married couple. Mark 6 and 3 clearly states that our Lord Jesus had brothers and sisters. And as recently as in 1854, the Pope declared that Mary was conceived free from sin and remained sinless despite the fact that in Luke 1 and 47, she declares that the Lord Jesus is her Savior. Catholicism goes on to say that Mary uh, was uh, taken in her body and sold straight to heaven. Uh, that doctrine... Uh, was declared as recently as 1950 and there she is enthroned as the queen of heaven where she prays for her church and it's in some degree to be worshipped nothing again is said of this in the bible so that maybe does sound like a lot of catholic beating I'm really I do apologize for that do you know there is much that is in error in the liberal protestant church there is much that is in error in the evangelical protestant church There is much that is in error in my heart and in yours, unless we bring it under the authority of Scripture. Anyone or any church, discipline, denomination, that distance itself from the Bible, as our only sure guide, you will immediately see all sorts of errors creeping in to their faith and doctrines. Distortion of biblical truths can lead to many problems. Um, The most tragic of all is that the distortion of biblical truths can lead to the proclamation of a gospel that is no gospel at all, to which Paul writes to the churches in Galatia, whether a man or angelic being preaches a gospel other than the one that we preach to you in the saving power of Jesus' death on the cross, let that man or angel be eternally damned. These are strong words. There is no second guessing on this. So what does Hebrews 10 talk about? And how's the time going? Yeah, no, we're gonna we we're fine. We're good. Hebrews 10 talks about Christ's sacrifice once for all. You've maybe heard the story. Some of you will because I know that you pray for missionaries and you know your missionary history really, really well. Warren Wearsby, in his commentary on Hebrews, uh, entitled Be Confident, records the wonderful story of the conversion of Hudson Taylor, a, a man who founded the China Inland Mission that became the Overseas Missionary Fellowship and is now known as OMF International. As a teenage boy, Hudson found himself with time on his hands while his mother was away on a visit. He decided to read a book from the family library. And as he read the book, he came across the phrase, the finished work of Christ. It struck him with unusual power. The finished work of Christ. Why why does the author use this expression? He asked himself. Why not say the atoning or the propitiatory work of Christ? Well, you see, he knew all the biblical terms, he just didn't know the Saviour. And then the words spoken by Christ on the cross, it is finished, flashed into his mind and he realized afresh that the work of salvation was accomplished. So he said to himself, if the whole work is finished and the whole debt is paid, what is left for me to do? He knew the answer, and he fell to his knees to receive the Savior and full forgiveness of sins. The first four verses of Hebrews 10. I'm going to rattle through this, okay? Hold on. The foreshadowing of Christ's sacrifice. Let's read these again. Hebrews 10, 1-4. The law is a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the realities themselves. For this reason, it can never by the same sacrifices repeated endlessly year after year make perfect those who draw near to worship. If it could, they would not have stopped being offered. Would they not have stopped being offered? For the worshippers would have been cleansed once for all and would no longer have felt guilty for the sins. But those sacrifices are an annual reminder of sins because it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Now, the key to understanding the letter to the Hebrews is the word better. Whenever you read through Hebrews, get that word in your head. The word better, the word superior. The word better works better for me. Um it is all about Jesus and his better life and work. In chapter 1, he is better than the angels. In chapter 2, although he is made like in human likeness, he is better than the rest of humanity. In chapter 3 and 4, he is better than Moses or any of the high priests that ever lived, including Aaron. In chapter 5, he is the one who established a better solution for dealing with the sin problem. In chapter 6, he is the source of a better hope. And in chapter 7, because of his permanent priesthood, he becomes the guarantee of a better covenant and is able to save completely those who come to him for salvation. In chapter 8, there's new and better ministry of Jesus compared with the human priesthood. And the better covenant replaces the old covenant with its systems and rituals. Chapter 9 speaks of the new covenant that allows people to worship in spirit and truth without being tied to a time or a place as being better Than any earthly tabernacle or temple. The complicated system of rituals and sacrifice of the Old Testament were necessary provision to allow the presence of the Holy God, as we learned from Exodus this morning, to be manifestly present among a sinful people. But it was only ever intended to be a shadow or a reflection of a far better covenant that was established and finished through the work of Christ on the cross. All of the blood And the animal sacrifices, all the grain burned in offerings, and all the wine poured out in libations. And its unquantifiable totality was a poor, pale, very imperfect, and totally unsatisfactory reflection or depiction. It's only a foreshadowing of what was to be completed by Jesus, the Son of God, when He died for the sin of the world, in that once and for all time where He satisfied the eternal demands of a holy and righteous God, who judged that the wages of sin is death. Now, in order to, to help us grasp just how much better the new covenant is, let's just briefly summarize the contrast between the old and the new covenants in chapter nine. Just turn back to chapter nine there with me. I'm just going to hit the verses as we go through them. Chapter one: the old. This is the old covenant, the the imperfect, the incomplete. The sanctuary was man-made. Verses two to five: the furnishings were only a pattern of the real things that existed in heaven. Verses six to seven: the presence of God was inaccessible to the people. Uh, Verse eight: it wasn't permanent. Verses nine to ten: it was all about external works that never, by virtue, affected the inner heart of the spirit of the worshipper. Compare that with the new covenant, starting at verse eleven in chapter nine: the sanctuary. Is a heavenly reality, which is in the, the present and the, and the further, and, and is accessible to the worshipers whose sins are dealt with by the blood of Jesus. Verses twelve through fifteen: sin is dealt with; it's atoned for; it's not just covered over. Sixteen through twenty-three: the ministry of the new covenant is established on the basis of an extremely costly substitutionary sacrifice. Verses twenty-four through twenty-eight: it is an utterly finished and completed work. Unlike the Old Covenant, the New Covenant points to no new future work yet to be established or to be performed by God or involving any human activity. It's a done deal. It's vastly superior to anything that's gone on before it. Now, the concern that the writer of this letter has that causes him, it actually causes him to question the wisdom and the motives of the Hebrews. He's saying, since you've got this in all its completeness, why would you go back to something that's incomplete and imperfect? And we have to say to anyone who claims to be Christian, who isn't just resting in the finished work of Jesus, why? Why would you, why would you put your trust, why would you put your faith in something that at best can only point you to that which has already been done? You can't redo it. Let's look at at that doctrine of offering Christ in the Mass. It's there in 5 through 7, the fulfillment of Christ's sacrifice. Therefore, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you prepared for me with burnt offerings and sin offerings you were not pleased. Then I said, Here I am, it is written about me in the scroll, I have come to do your will, O God. Notice who the provider of the sacrifice is it's God, it's not man. Psalm 49, verse 7 says, No man can redeem the life of another or give to God a ransom for him. You see, though necessary under the conditions of the Old Testament, the sacrifices in and of themselves did not please God unless they were accompanied by a thankful, obedient, and worshiping heart. And at the moment in time when Christ died on the cross outside the city wall at Jerusalem, That was a part of a foreordained divine plan to which the man Jesus wrestled within his humanity submit to its greater and much better outcome than that which had been previously willed by God for the priests and the people to do. He said, not my will, but yours be done. It's a final submission to the divine purposes of God against which every fiber and feeling of his physical and mental strength strained to resist. How grotesque and how fundamentally erroneous the notion that Christ is re-sacrificed every time the priest elevates the consecrated bread on the altar. Altar, that's an old covenant term in itself. Every aspect of the Mass is inherently flawed from beginning to end takes us thirdly to the fullness of Christ's sacrifices. First he said, sacrifices and offerings, burnt offerings and sin offerings you did not desire, nor were you pleased with them, although the law required them to be made. Then he said, here I am, I have come to do your will. He sets aside the first to establish the second, and by that will we have been made holy through the sacrifices of the body of Jesus Christ, once. For all. It's not the priest or the Pope or the Mass or penance or Mary or indulgences, bygone saints, or anything that you and I could do or another person could do that makes us holy. It's by submission to Jesus' will, to be obedient to the Father's will in that once for all sacrifice, that His perfect substitutionary sacrifice in dying a horrible death on a cruel cross satisfied the eternal judgment of God against the sin of all who believe and trust in Jesus. Our holiness is secured by that same submissive will of Christ's in obedience to the Father. Jesus looks at us as sinners and sees his Son in whom he is well pleased. And that takes us to the final few verses, the finality of Christ's sacrifice. Just look at verse 14 there with me. Because of one sacrifice, not two, not any other multiple. He, the agent, Jesus Christ, has made perfect, that's past tense, forever. It is an eternally completed work. Those who are being, present continuous tense, made holy, that is set aside and suitable for God's fit purpose. Hallelujah. What a Savior. It's done. It's finished. You trust in Jesus' completed work. There is nothing more to do. So conclusion. Final question. Have you trusted in Christ as your only Savior? Are you trusting in Him alone? Do you have the assurance of the Holy Spirit living with you, causing you to live by faith and not in fear. Let us pray.